Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Malachi is a tough book. Now, Daniel and Zechariah, they were, they were confusing books. Malachi is just hard. There's not a lot of good news in Malachi. I mean, there is. It's there for the believer to cling to, but the majority of the book doesn't say nice things. It says offensive things. It says condemning things. And so to try to read it, you have to first understand God's purpose of election of you in Jesus. You need to know that you are the people who are promised to live forever because the promise has come to you. How has that happened? Through the proclamation, he is risen. Hallelujah. You believe that? Well, then you're the elect because you can't believe that without being elect. Now, you might say, that makes me look inside at myself, Pastor Fisk, and I'm not sure how much I believe that. Fine, then believe the promise of your baptism, that God has come to you outside of you and named you his own with water and the word. Romans chapter 6, right before chapter 9 that we just heard read, makes that essential to understanding election. God gave the promise of circumcision to Abraham. Abraham gives it to Isaac. Isaac is the one through who the promises are named. Colossians 2, that now has become baptism for you. Baptism is the washing of regeneration that buries you in Christ and raises you again. Again, Romans 6 says this as well. So trust this. The words and promises are yours. But now, this is important. I had a question yesterday on my Saturday morning show on YouTube. You can always check that out. Saturday is live from 9 to 11. You can get it as a podcast. It's called Stop the White Noise. I answer questions. If you have a question, feel free to send it in and then watch. I'll answer it. The question was this, though. Uh, Pastor, uh, how long is baptism good for? Because I have a son who was baptized and no longer believes in Jesus. Is his baptism still work? Is the question. And this is this is going to help us with election here. Okay, baptism is good forever. When God says, "I saved you," it's good forever. What baptism does is gives you faith that God has saved you by saying, I saved you. Believing that is the result of baptism, the good regeneration of faith in you by the Spirit. Now, if someone who is given that promise cuts themselves off and says, no more for me, well, it's not the baptism that's the problem. It's their heart that's the problem. And you might say, well, then isn't it about works, pastor? And I say, for the perdition, for the condemned? Yes. Yes. Judgment day and hell are about works for those who are going to hell. But this is where election, before it is anything, is not logical. It's also not fair. It's just to be believed. For those who are saved, it's not about works. It's about God saving you. God reaching down into the pile of your wicked works and pulling you out and saying, I baptize you. I wash you. I choose you. And again, even without having been baptized, the words, he is risen. Alleluia. Proclaim this victory in such truth that it creates that faith. And again, then he says, be washed in my name and know that you are my own. Okay. So before baptism was given as the new Testament sign and seal, I mentioned already you had circumcision You had the law of Moses. You had the Sinai covenant. 
And this is what held the people of Israel together as the flesh from whom Jesus would eventually come through a bunch of ups and downs. And as we've looked at various books in the Bible, as we looked at the Old Testament last year, we have seen some of this story, right? How they come into the land and they're faithful and then they're not. And then they have Samuel come and he brings them to faith, but then they got King Saul and then he's not. And then David comes and he's faithful and then David's not. And then he repents. And then Solomon is this great king who then messes it all up. And the Rehoboam, it all goes to a disaster from there. But then Hezekiah, he believes. And Josiah, he believes. And they have these kings that reestablish it. But all the way, you see this up and down in which man can't do it. God keeps it going for the sake of bringing Christ into the world. Part of that then means he eventually condemns them where they are for having truly abandoned that old covenant. And as you know, he destroys Jerusalem and takes them into exile for 70 years in Babylon. We looked at Daniel and Zechariah and all this about how they'd be put back into the land and how the Greeks would come and tyrannize them for a time and the horrible reign of Antiochus and all these things. This also is so that Jesus will be born at the fullness of time under the Roman government, Pontius Pilate, to die so that the election he gives you might be paid for, right? The cross is not so much the moment of election of you as the election of Jesus as the king with whom God is pleased. And this is what he does to the king he's pleased with. He kills him. He crushes him for you in order that he might also be pleased with you by the work that Jesus has done. All right, so I want to put Malachi into that picture now, right? So we have come back to the land at this point in the story. Zerubbabel, the governor descended from David, Joshua, the high priest, they have been able to get the temple worship going back in the land. And if you look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we won't be doing this right now, but you see that there's some trouble at this time as they try to reestablish themselves from various people groups around them, including the Samaritans and these Edomites. Edomites are the descendants of Esau. Esau, the brother of Jacob, who was in the womb, about whom God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I'll try to come back to that again here in a moment. But they're surrounded by these groups that don't want them to reestablish themselves in the land. And uh, also, uh, they do begin to uh, get jealous of these groups. And that's where Malachi is going to come in after all of this has taken place and start to speak to them about how they are becoming unfaithful again. So let me say that one more time a different way. Having come back to the land and received faithful prophets and trusted in the promises and beginning to build up that temple and have their life reestablished, they start to be discontent with it. They start to say, yeah, you know, maybe God's not really with us. And maybe we're free to do some other things. And that's where Malachi comes and says, I'm going to summarize it shortly. Since you're not listening, this is the last thing I'm going to say. And then it's wrapped up. And there's 500 years that passes. And then John comes, fulfilling those final verses to call the people back, lest no one believe in Jesus and God have to destroy the entire world. John comes and indeed, Christ's way is prepared for him. And he does find the faithful who are looking for him. He is able to call disciples before he dies for their sins. And again, this is because of the work of John the Baptist as Malachi foretells. That's where our story is going to end then, Malachi foretelling that. What we're going to do now is we're going to work through the book, kind of bird's eye view again like we've been doing. It's only four chapters. 
and we're going to look at this story of what happened as they lost faith back in the land that leads into, again, the punishment of the Greeks that will later come upon them in Antiochus. If you'd like to find the book in the Pew Bible, it's on page 801, 801, and we're going to look definitely at verses 1 through 5, because this is where Paul gets that quote, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, that he brings up in Romans 9 about the doctrine of election, which again is the promise that salvation is by grace through faith alone when God chooses you, wakes you up from the dead, regenerates your heart to believe and trust in the precious name of Jesus Christ. All right, so the oracle, verse one, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. First, the word oracle there is probably better translated as burden, burden. That means it's not a happy prophecy. These these happen more and more toward condemnation times in prophecies. They become burdens of the Lord. He is bothered by us and what he has to say about us. This burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. That is Hebrew for my messenger or even my angel. There is some debate. Was Malachi this guy's real name? We don't know. We really don't know much about this guy at all, other than that, again, he was the last prophet, and he certainly was trusted and kept and quoted by Jesus. All right. It's going to come in three major sections, and the first section is all about this election part. He says, verse 2, God says, I have loved you, but you say, how have you loved us? Notice the setup here. God is promising salvation, and he's saying, no matter how much I promise salvation, you don't believe it. You, know, you, you ask, what, what are you talking about? Where are you, God? What have you done for me lately? Yeah, You don't believe it. This call and then response, how come or where is it, is going to be a pattern that goes through all the book. But it really sets us off here, and now he's going to answer. I'll tell you how I've loved you. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And now... I have laid waste his hill country. That's Esau. I have laid waste Esau's hill country and have left Esau's heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom, that's also Esau, the people of Edom are the descendants of Esau, says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, which remember, this is what they were doing. They were trying to stop the Jews from reestablishing their position and saying they were going to be the great people of the land. He says, if that's what they do, they may build... Middle of verse four, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom Jesus Christ, the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, the long and short of that is until I told you that Edom was the descendants of Esau, did you know who Edom was? As a, yeah, no, right? As opposed to, do you know who the Jews are? So this is his point. The descendants of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, the Jews, everyone's going to know who they are forever. The Edomites, who are they? What are they? And so if the Jews at any time say, where is God? God just has to say, are you kidding me? I mean, look at you. Look how from the very beginning I've been with you. And then remember, we won't go deep into Romans, but how Paul brings up the issue of Isaac and, uh, and Ishmael, right? That under Abraham, He had two kids, not just one. He had two sons, not just one, but only one son by Sarah. And Sarah then was the son of the promise. 
She was promised in her old age to have this son and they, by their works, go and get Hagar, this younger woman, to have a, a son. They have Ishmael, but he's the man of works. He's the one of the flesh, not of promise. And so they're driven from the camp as an image, as a symbol of the fact that works won't be good enough. But then Isaac is born the son of promise because the promises of God are always good enough. And so similarly, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I give promises, believe in the promises. If you reject my promises, you're outside. And this is where then again, this is so important. Hell is part of the gospel. The throwing of the evildoer with Satan and his angels into the fire is the releasing of we who are saved from the plight of being tyrannized by the evildoer. And we modern people have so much trouble with this, but that's not fair. Don't they get a chance? No one gets a chance. No one has a chance. If you were given a chance, you'd throw yourself into hell. You don't believe because you took the chance. You believe because the Holy Spirit of God chose to inhabit you and chose to wake you up. Well, how come me and not others? I understand that question. I feel that question too. I also know it's a faithless question. That's my flesh at work. That's my doubt at work. Why would I say, why are you saving me, God? It's a strange thing to say. How come you're saving me and not them? He says, I'm saving you. I'm saving you. That's election again. It's ultimately good news, but it certainly is a stumbling stone, yeah? Remember how in the gospel reading, Jesus sends that message back to John about how you know that he's the Christ, the blind receive their sight, the lepers are healed and all this stuff. And don't miss, no prophet ever healed a blind man. None. They raised the dead, they healed lepers, they preached the good news, they never healed a blind man. Although the Psalms do say that God opens the eyes of the blind and then there's Jesus. Am I the Christ? Are you kidding me? I've healed blind people. I've done something no one's ever done before. But final thing he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Hmm? Because Christ is on offense, not defense. And he is offending our sin. He is attacking it. He is going to kill it. He is going to destroy the old man, the old mind, the old heart within you. Romans 7 talks about, you know, the good I would do, I do not do. The evil that I do not want to do, that is what I do. The idea here is that you indeed have sin still living within you as a Christian. And it's a fight you're going to find. And so when you find the truth of the Bible and you're like, I don't like it, that's okay. Just don't trust yourself. Put yourself down against the words and let the words be stronger than you. So again, God destroys Edom because he wants to keep the Jews as a people because he loves not the Jews as a people, but those who will be his people who will believe in the promises. He loves the children of the promises of whom Edom is not, and Jacob most definitely is. And then verse five again, your own eyes shall see this. Verses, uh, the rest of the verses in chapter, two, uh, chapter one, leading up to chapter two, are largely about the lack of integrity in the sacrifices that are taking place at the reestablished temple site. What is happening here, I won't go through it verse by verse, but uh, maybe you can look at verse eight here, right? When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you? or show you favor, says the Lord, right? So, so what's going on? 
the priests that have reestablished the worship are not only accepting, but they must in some way thereby be teaching what we would call heterodoxy or heresy or false teaching. They're teaching against what the Bible says in the law of Moses. Now, when you would come to this temple, you were supposed to bring various sacrifices throughout the year, depending on your life, your station, and a bunch of other things. And so it was possible that you didn't always offer the firstborn spotless lamb. That was for specific sacrifices. You could actually just bring up two pigeons at a certain point if, if that was all you could afford. God made it possible for everybody to bring something. But they didn't care about that. They were just shirking what they should do. And so regardless of which sacrifice they were supposed to bring, the whole were bringing less than what they were supposed to bring. And the priests were saying, no problem. Yeah, it's blind and missing a leg and a runt. We'll sacrifice it to God anyway. He won't notice. Yeah. And so God's like, I noticed. I noticed. Now, probably the hardest thing I'm going to say this morning, I mean, it's very, very straightforward. How, how is our tithing? How is our giving? How is your willingness to take all that you have and take the first 10% off it and say, yep, right back to God? Or my guess is somewhere where mine is. Like, oh, that would, I can't do that yet. I told you already this year, we're up to 8%. We took that step again, just like we do every year. Set apart, October, we make our pledge, try to get to 10. Take 1% a year, add on 1% a year, you'll get to 10 eventually. So I'm not saying this as if I am without error or sin here, right? But if we're really looking at the world around us and saying, where are you, God? Well, where are we? And where am I? How much faith do we have in his ability to provide for us? How much trust do we have in his reigning over all things? How much do we believe this life matters more than the next life? And that's a problem now. This life is the waiting room. This life is the holding place. This life is a passing dream. This life is an exile. This life is life intense. This life is a dead seed in the ground. The world to come is what really matters, eternity. The world to come is perfection and innocence and blessedness forever. The world to come is not tents, but a building, not seeds, but a flower and blossom bearing fruit forever. And so as we look at this time of Malachi, and we see his condemnation before we wag our fingers, which in some respect we should do. But before we do, we also want to point the finger at our own heart and ask ourselves, are we willing to trust God and admit, you know what? No, no, not really. Not yet, not quite. And even those of you who are tithing, and I know there are some of you who do and who give offerings over and above this. I mean, it's not as though that has earned you anything. God bless you for what you do. But even at that point, we should only say we have done our duty. We are but worthless servants at that point, as Christ says. Yes. So with that hardest thing I'm going to say this morning, sitting right there in our faces, right? Although the next part gets kind of rough. In chapter two, he condemns them for something else they're doing, which I can say the American churches have also really allowed this in the last 50, 60 years. Um, let's start at chapter two, verse one. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart and give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. 
Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Okay, so this is, a, a, this is like the curse that comes when you withhold the offering that ought to be given to God. Did you, did you follow that? He says, because you are not willing to trust me, because you're withholding what you actually owe me that I gave you, because I gave it all to you to begin with, and I just want a certain part of it back, so you will admit you trust me. That's the whole point. Admit that you trust me. Since you won't do that, since you think by withholding over here, you're going to have more, I'm going to curse you by giving you more. Follow this. Since you're going to be a miser and hold the money and keep it for yourself, I'm going to let you have a lot of money. And it'll be dung on your face. Because what it's going to do is it's going to blind you. You're not going to be able to see God. You're not going to be able to know who he is or what he's done. And you won't even see the destruction coming upon you. Remember that what is being taught and done at this place in time is what leads to the wrath of Antiochus Epiphanes. The guy who's killing babies and hanging them around people's necks. Okay, It's the worst kind of uh, persecution I could ever imagine. Uh, I'd rather be killed than have that kind of thing done to me and my family. And it's again, because they were holding to the prosperity of this life as if it were what life is about. And he warns them, that can be a curse too. Huh? Going ahead now to chapter 10, there's another way that they're holding to prosperity in this life that even is more fleshly than just money. Verse 10 says this, have we not all one father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? This is not about the fatherhood of God over all men. This is about how God established Israel and Judah. And he's asking now, why are we faithless to each other as believers? Why as believers are we not treating the believing community as more valuable than the rest of the world? In a very specific way, verse 11, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, how? And has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So what does that mean? In 1 Corinthians, Paul has a large section on marriage. And in it, he talks about even like whether we should get married or not and how it's not a bad thing to remain celibate your entire life. That's actually a gift from God if you're given that gift. But that also marriage is there for the sake of com uh, companionship and for the sake of godly offspring. What he says, though, also is that fellowship does not exist between light and darkness. And so one who is filled with the light of the Holy Spirit, one who is filled with the light of the word of God, does a foolish thing to marry someone who is filled with darkness, who has no Holy Spirit, who does not believe in the word of God. Now, listen carefully to the next thing I say. Is it possible for a Christian to marry a non-Christian and remain a Christian? Yes. Is it easy? No. 
Is it foolish? Yes. Is it wise? No. What should you do if you're already there? Be faithful. Stay where you are. Believe in the vow you've given. But who am I really speaking to now? Those who aren't married yet. And I'm going to say to you, don't marry someone who doesn't share your faith. It is the most foolish thing you can do. Why? Because of your kids. Because of your kids. They're going to have trouble with this. Yeah, They're not going to know what to believe. And so this is the condemnation they're getting now as Jews who had a very specific law. They weren't allowed to do this. It was literally against their law to do this. And they were doing it. And then what's more? They weren't just marrying foreign women and allowing the worship of those foreign gods in their land, but they were divorcing their Jewish wives in order to make it happen. That's what goes on in the next verses here. Verse 13 and following. This second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Let's come back to that last part of verse 15 in a moment. But so see what went on there. He says, look, you're all coming to church. He's talking to the Jews. You're all coming to church and you're, you're crying at the altar. Oh Lord, why won't you bless us? Oh Lord, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Oh Lord, why are they doing so much more than us? And he's like, because you don't even stay married. Like you vow to each other to stay married and then you divorce each other to marry some prostitute who worships a foreign God. What do you want me to do? Bless that? That's that's what he's saying here. Yeah. And then that little bit at the end of verse 15, it's about divorce here. What was the one God seeking? The word God is kind of added there. It's what was the one seeking? And the answer is godly offspring. So what Malachi is doing here is he's answering a skeptic who's going to say, but but Abraham divorced Hagar. Can't we divorce? Yeah. And remember how Jesus will say, it's because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed divorce. And then here, the answer is, what was the one Abraham seeking? A son of the promise is the answer. It's not just godly offspring in general. It's Isaac, who we just talked about, right? So Abraham's situation is not an example for us to follow. That we are to just get married and divorce frivolously as if this is just a free thing, okay? Now, let me be careful here. Is there forgiveness for those who are divorced? Yes. Can you be remarried after you've been divorced under the grace of God to a Christian? Yes. Does that make the divorce good? No. Can God use evil for good? Yes. Can he make better things come out of the evil we intended? Yes. Should we therefore see the level of divorce that we see in our country right now, where, what, 50, 60% of marriages end in divorce? Should that be normal amongst Christians? No. No. And now let me get real specific. In the LCMS, where divorces become commonplace, do we have a leg to stand on when we say, why are there no more children in our pews? The text is pretty clear. At least until we acknowledge in our hearts that we have brought it on ourselves through the overuse of birth control measures, 
the preventing of offspring to be born at all, the dividing of families, the destruction of marriage, we are no different than the culture around us as a church body or very, very close to no different. We like to think we are, but we're not. And so again, if we want reformation, if we want renewal, if we want growth, it's going to begin by you young people. Again, I'm talking to you. Get married, stay married, have kids. Believe that's what God wants out of your life. Believe that he wants you to marry light and not darkness and pass that light forward. Believe that the point is that last verse about, of the whole book, turning the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers. The point is God does want the faith to go from generation to generation. And that means you got to have that generation. You can't decide not to have them. As I've heard far too many people in our age say, young women, young men, how could I have kids in a world like this? Are you kidding me? It's always been this bad. It's always been this dangerous. How can you have kids until you have them? You don't know. They're the best thing that ever happens in your life. And then on top of that, God has given you eternal life with them, everlasting life with them if you impart it to them, if you tell them. Now, of course, there's going to be some of you out there that are like, what about mine? Where'd mine go? And I've got an answer for you here again, grace, and yet more grace, and prayer, and belief that baptism is forever, and asking God specifically, God, you claim them by name, remember them by name, bring them to repentance. But then also, there's another word for you, and it's not tell them everything's okay, glad to see you this Christmas. It's, you know what? It's going to make me sad when I die and never see you again. You have to start talking that way to your kids that don't believe if you want them to believe. You have to let them know you believe something they don't believe. You have to let them know that what they believe is darkness and you believe light. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. Did I tell you Malachi's hard? Malachi's hard. It's hard. Huh? But it's also true. It's true. And it's good. And the purpose of election works in this way. When you hear the hard truth, like David did. You remember this? He had done all this work to cover up all of his sin. Nobody knew that Bathsheba had belonged to this guy, Uriah, who had been murdered by the scheming of David so that he could cover up his adultery with her. But who was watching all along? Jesus was. And so he came through the prophet Nathan and says to David, here's a little story about a man who had a bunch of cattle and sheep. There's a sheep, not cattle. man who had a bunch of sheep. But then he saw one little ewe lamb who belonged to this one man, and this man loved that lamb. He petted that lamb, he took care of that lamb, but that, that one man, the rich man, he went and he killed that man and took his little ewe lamb. And David said, that man should die. Nathan says, that's you. And what's David do? Does he blame God like Saul? Huh? Does he run off and hang himself like Judas? No, he does what St. Peter does. He falls on the ground and says, Lord, I got nothing in me. Have mercy. And Jesus has mercy. So remember again, as you listen to all of this hard text, you are the elect. You have been chosen to believe. Do you carry sin? Of course you do. Do you want to keep your sin? No, you don't. And a large part of that is learning to call it what it is. Call it what it is and then bury it in the wounds of Jesus, trusting he is sufficient to overcome. And then when you have those battle wounds and those scars from a life of mistakes and errors as you wandered amongst demons and in darkness, turn to those who are younger, who have not yet walked that way and tell them the truth about the matter. Tell them how it really worked out. Tell them how sad you are that you didn't do enough. Tell them how what they need most, again, is word from Jesus, sacrament from Jesus, and trust in what he says over and above the rest of the world. All right. 
So, what was he seeking? Godly offspring. Middle of verse 15, rest of the verse. So guard yourselves in spirit and let none of you be faithless with the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. All right, that kind of closes up that section. Now, so we had the opening, the warning, Jacob and Esau. We have the middle. Here are these things you're doing, bad sacrifices. You don't care about marriage at all. Chapter three and four are going to turn toward this messenger who's going to come, John the Baptist. I'm going to go silent for a while, 500 years. But after that, there's still one big prophet coming before the final king comes. This begins then uh, in chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to skip over just a couple of verses there, down to chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, Behold, I send Malachi, uh, my messenger, and he will prepare, prepare the way before me. Notice how the one who's to come is him. Yeah. And the Lord whom you seek, that's God, will suddenly come to his temple. And that's what happened when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus there after his circumcision to be presented. Yeah? That's what happened when as a 12-year-old, he showed up teaching. And everyone was like, who is this guy? That's what happened when he comes with the whip and he drives out the money changers. The Lord who they were seeking suddenly came to his temple, having been pointed to by John the Baptist. Yeah, It repeats the same idea, calling this Christ who will come the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. That word messenger, again, is the word malek, angel, which connects this idea to the angel of the Lord, the, the, uh, the ruler of the armies of the Lord, a figure who has been throughout the Old Testament showing himself to be God. He also, then, is this one who will to come. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. There's really two major ideas to take out of that section. First one is, if you're longing for God's judgment upon the culture around you, stop because no one can endure this. When the judgment comes, it will come on all. And even we who are standing in the midst of it righteous can see it harm us. Even as Christians on the last day, remember how St. Paul talks about, you can build with gold, you can build with silver, you can build with stone and straw. And the last day is going to reveal the straw and the straw is going to burn away. But those who build on the foundation of Christ, they will remain standing. It's very clear that that gold, silver, stone, and straw is talking about our lives, our actual works. Not our salvation, not our salvation, just how we see ourselves. And so before you long for everyone else to be judged, just remember, you still get to have your straw burned away too. And who on their own can endure it? And so again, what's the real answer? Not, dear Jesus, cast them down, although the Psalter will have you pray that. But ultimately, dear Jesus, you're my only hope. 
The Psalter will never teach you to pray against your enemies without also casting yourself on your face and acknowledging that you have nothing on your own to bring. Who can endure the day of his coming? The emphasis is on the wrath. Notice again how Malachi, he's just, he's just not a happy book. Uh, it's about repentance. It's about being weary of yourself. It's about knowing that this life must pass away. And the more you hope in this life, the more trouble you're going to have with that idea. Hmm? He's going to refine you. Okay, so this is the second idea though. This kind of preaching, this kind of Bible, this kind of talk is here to burn away before that day. To refine you like metal in a smelting pot which you get it hot enough and it separates the true gold and the true silver from all the dross and alloy that you're able to pour off so you have a pure metal. That is what God is doing to you right now. Right today. In you hearing this and having to endure me talk to you like this. He is purifying you. He is setting you apart from this godless nation in which we live. He is making you to see that his word is indeed greater and more true than anything that we can ever do. And that indeed, especially the word that says, it's grace that saves you. It's the purpose of election that saves you. If it were up to you and how good you were in your marriage, if it were up to you and how good you were in your offerings, you wouldn't make it. Nobody would make it. Yeah, it is, it is this grace that comes for you to purify the sons of Levi. These are the priests again. These are those who serve at the temple who at the start of the book are said to be unclean. But remember then what Peter does with this kind of language in his book. He talks about how we Christians have been made a nation of royal priests. So it's not that the Levitical covenant got reestablished by Jesus. It got fulfilled by Jesus so that the covenant of Melchizedek, the righteous king, the priest who is also a king, the one whose holy body brings out uh, bread and wine to give as the true tithe to all the people so that that could be given to you, making you this nation of priests. You then are the purified priests of God because you are able to say he is risen. Alleluia. And so this is where we talked about offering with money. Honestly, he doesn't need your money. He doesn't even care about your money. Your money is something that you deal with because of your idolatry of it. What he wants from you is your heart. What he wants from you are your prayers. What he wants from you is your trust. That when you see the wicked being punished with extra wealth, you don't say, why don't I get it? But instead you say, aha, they have their reward in this life, but I am waiting for a better life. Aha, the wicked borrows and does not repay. He spreads his leaves like a tree, but he will pass away and it will be no more. Yet I am a tree planted by streams of water to bring forth eternal fruit, a greater fruit, fruit that trusts that the little that the righteous man has is greater than the abundance of many wicked. And if you didn't pick up on how much of Psalm 37 I just gave you, go look up Psalm 37 this week and read through it. It's everything I just said right there. All right, with our time running down, we're going to continue into the text that, um, ah, we're going to hit both of them. We'll make it. We'll make it. We're going to jump ahead to verse six in, in uh, uh, chapter three here, where he says this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So if you felt judged today, that's what this text does is it judges you. 
but he actually says, but I haven't changed at all. And that's why I'm still talking to you. That's why I'm still speaking to you. That's why you have not been swept away entirely. That's why you don't have a preacher here telling you ignore this stuff. It's because he has not changed and he wants to save you rather than consume you. Yeah. Verse seven, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you say, how shall we return? He says, will man rob God? You are yet robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Again, he points out the bringing into the storehouse of the temple, their actual offerings. He says, verse nine, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me the whole nation of you. Verse 10 is what we want to focus on. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Did you catch that? It's not wrong to say, look, If we all just amplify our actual physical giving, we'll have more than enough at home. He'll give us plenty. Although that's not really the point. But it's true. More than it is about money, though, it's not about filthy lucre. It's about your prayers. If you will just come into the house and offer your prayers to God and say, you are my God, save me from this world. Give me enough to live on. Make me have enough in my heart so I want to give you a full tithe and then some. Teach me to know your ways, O Lord. Guide me in your truth. See if he won't open your heart. See if he won't give the Holy Spirit generously to you who ask of it. Although that's also not what this is about. Because it's not about you. Yes, it was about the Israelites. Try me and see if I don't. And they didn't. But who did? I want you to zoom in on what he said. I will open the floodgates of heaven. That language is specific. It's used in Genesis. Do you remember this? When that worldwide flood happened that very few people believe in anymore, but it did happen. And where's all that water come from? It comes from the the floodgates of the deep. There's these spaces in the deep that open up, the oceans. But then there's also these floodgates of heaven, these windows in heaven that open. And some people like to speculate, well, there was an ice shield around the planet and it got hit by a meteor and then it all broke and came crashing. Sure. I prefer to imagine that there actually opened up windows in heaven and water just poured through it. Water that wasn't there before. And the reason I like that is because I also remember when the one man who had pure heart and clean hands came and presented his full self before God in repentance at the Jordan River and the windows of heaven opened and the Holy Spirit for whom we long did descend as a dove to land on him. And that's when the tithe was brought. That's when the offering was made, when Christ presented himself as a sacrifice in the place of sinners and received what God had longed to give to man, redemption, regeneration, holiness, righteousness, and all these things, including a crown of thorns. A crown of thorns worn so he could be your king who rose from the dead and took you with him out of that grave. Now, ahead to chapter 4, verse 1, where he then warns, knowing this, look, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That's still coming. Hell is still coming. The day is coming that is coming shall set them ablaze. Fire, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. You will look for the wicked in his place and you won't be able to find him. 
But, verse 2, for you who fear my name. Don't miss it. This is the little gospel that's here in the book. You who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You ever seen a newborn cow? Newborn cow? They're, they're a little wobbly at first, and they get excited. They jump. They run around jumping, jumping, jumping. Now, I, I, I am, some of you guys think I'm, I'm young. <laughs> I'm not as young as you think I am. I, I feel it. You know, the elbows, the knees, and the back, it's, it's definitely there, right? So, so I can imagine what it felt like when I was young. I watched my kids run around and jump, and they're like up the stairs, down the stairs. Here, there they go, there they go. That's your resurrected body, according to this passage. That's what you're going to be in the next life. That's why the building's better than the tent, and the flower is better than the seed. Cling to that, and know that that was paid for by Jesus already, so that on that day, see this also, hell is part of the gospel, you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. I can't remember if it was last week or at the midweek service. I said, when you look at this cross, I want you to imagine that behind this nail going through Jesus' feet is the open mouth of a snake, or a dragon if you prefer, nailed into the cross underneath his feet with the blood choking him. He's choking on the blood as it runs down the tree, hanging there dead, yeah? That's the devil, ashes beneath Christ's feet. And you will know then on that day of resurrection, no one who's cast into the fire will you shed a tear for. You will sing, Alleluia, Alleluia, the smoke of her fire goes up forever and ever, as it is written in the book of Revelation, yeah? Know that, that will be a day of great victory for you. And then again, where your flesh says, but that's not fair, but I don't like it, pray that the Lord would enlighten you. Pray that the Lord would not let your flesh deceive you. Pray that you would be elected people who trust in the scriptures and not in your own mind and hearts, yes? Remember, verse four, the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Notice this is not about all of Torah. It could be. But what happened at Horeb? Do you remember this? This is where they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. There's flame and fire up on the top. They have no water. And God says, take your staff, Moses, and strike the rock at Horeb. That's, that's Horeb. It's the rock. Strike the rock and water will flow. He does it and water flows out and it's able for all the people to drink. Do you remember how in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that rock was Christ? Do you remember how Christ on the cross, struck by a spear, has water flow from his side? Do you see how it all hangs together? Now also then with that, understand that at the rock of Horeb, they had just heard God speak, not all of the law and the covenants, but the Ten Commandments. And so if we are to establish ourselves as a people of prayer, seeking to repent in the midst of an ungodly nation, what we believe has to begin with the Ten Commandments, that you shall have one God and he's Jesus. You shall call on that name Jesus as your prayers, because indeed that's what his name is given for. That the Sabbath day, the day of rest, is given to rest in the word of God. Not to go off and do more later today, that's fine. But if you're getting away from church because you're too tired of hearing the word of God, that's not rest, is it now? So we want to keep that rest. We want to seek that rest in his word. Number four, that you respect marriage and family, father and mother, that that authority structure be something we see for the good of society, that we pray for the order around us, not that it would descend into chaos, but it would be preserved in righteousness. And that where we see that or where we don't, we still look out for, number five, the good of our neighbor's body. Not merely that we would not harm him, but that we would seek to care for him, even those who don't deserve it which is why, again, pick up a homeless packet on your way. 
Give it out somewhere in the city this week, right? Number six, back to marriage. Respecting that marriage bed and seeing adultery as something that destroys nations. It destroys nations. Number seven, see all of your goods, not for hoarding to yourself, but for sharing with others. Number eight, see other people as being for building up rather than tearing down. And number nine and 10, see that you have enough. You have enough for today. The reason you don't think you have enough is you're too busy being worried about tomorrow and tomorrow is in God's hands or may even never come. Now for 500 years they waited and then behold, I send you Elijah the prophet, verse five, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, that's the day of Golgotha, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the curse of utter destruction. As we hear this Elijah-like sermon today, this preaching today, uh, the kind that got John the Baptist killed by Herod, remember what it's really about. It's about God stirring up our hearts so that we will see the real purpose of life right now is to pass forward the knowledge of Christ's resurrection to the generation that will be born after us. To see this ark, this building, this ship, not as our private club, but as indeed the sanctuary, the holy place, where we know the Bible is going to be relied on, where we know the body and blood of Jesus are going to be given according to the forgiveness of our sins, where we know that we are poor, miserable sinners, but we've also been declared holy and clean in God's sight unequivocally as his election because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. <clears throat> Let us, as we go on our way then today, rejoice in this as we are able. And do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Jesus has overcome the world. And he did this for you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.